0: Hey listeners, welcome back to Shades of Crime. This week's episode is part two of my investigation into the disappearing men of British Columbia's lower mainland. Throughout my research, I have found a lot of similarities between some of these cases, but in many other circumstances, I find that certain cases are more of a standalone mystery. But I will provide you with all of the potentially related cases and I'm gonna let you decide. So get ready, because things are about to get shady. This week, I will be telling you about the cases of Sahil Sharma, Manvir Sidhu, Kellen McElwee, Pablo Guerra, and Derek Kelly. All of these cases take place between 2004 and 2008, and each are as mysterious as the one before it. First up, I'll be telling you about the disappearance of Sahil Sharma. Sahil Sharma was a 20 year old man standing at about 5 feet and 6 inches tall and he weighed about 143 pounds, so he was a pretty small guy. Sahil moved to Surrey BC from his home in India to live with his aunt and uncle while he attended university at Quantian University where he studied information technology. Sahil worked hard at university and achieved great grades. He made many friends and loved his life in Canada. In 2008, Sahil was in his second year of university and was starting to prepare for his life after he graduated. Sahil was meeting with career counselors to both advise him on how to plan out his future and how to plan his electives to best serve him for his future goals. In November of 2008, Sahil was on his mid-semester break and he decided to take a trip home to India to visit his family. While home, Sahil spent some quality family time where he got to see his parents and close family in person for the first time in a while, an opportunity in which they were all excited to jump on. But this trip wasn't just to visit. Sahil also needed to return home to get some money to pay for his upcoming semester's tuition. On Sahil's last day home in India, his family sent him off with $4,000 cash to pay off his tuition for this semester. Sahil departed from his family home and made his way back, arriving in Surrey on November 13th of 2008. Once he got home, Sahil went to his university in the morning to deposit his tuition payment. Once he had done so, Sahil went for another meeting with his career counsellor. Following this meeting, he then went to meet up with a few friends before he had to go to classes for the day. After leaving his friends, Sahil attended his classes which ended around 7.30pm. Sahil left his final class and walked off campus towards his home. Sahil's aunt and uncle were waiting for him at home, and they were kind of expecting him to come home at his usual time. He had a fixed schedule, so his time of arrival was pretty predictable usually. But hours passed by, and no Sahil. But maybe he had gone to hang out with his friends. He had just returned from India after all and it isn't that unlikely that he would want to see his friends and they'd want to see him. However, when the next morning turned into the next evening, a strong, unsettling feeling set into Sahil's aunt and uncle, and they knew they needed to talk to authorities. Sahil's aunt and uncle first called the police, and then they called his parents in India, and as many parents would in this situation, Sahil's parents flew into a complete panic. They had so many questions on what may have happened, but there were no answers. Police investigations stalled almost immediately. Their last piece of information was CCTV footage of Sahil leaving the campus around 7.30. And in the footage, he was alone, he didn't look distressed, and he didn't look like he was in danger in any kind. There really seemed to be nothing wrong just based on the footage. While police told Sahil's family that there was nothing that could be found in regards to the whereabouts of Sahil, his family was not convinced, and his mother, father, and siblings flew from India to Surrey to carry out investigations of their own. At first, the family searched areas they knew Sahil frequented, they scoured places he often spoke of, and even spoke with friends Sahil mentioned. None of these attempts yielded any valuable information. And with each passing day, the feeling that the family may never again see Sahil really began to set in. And since very little information was dredged up, Sahil's disappearance quickly faded into the background. Sahil's family had to return to India with a strong feeling of defeat and an utter lack of resolve. And that's where Sahil's case was left. This bright young man, described as kind. Giving and loving disappeared without a single piece of evidence as to where he went. This case, when it's described by authorities, fits the profile of a homicide, and authorities suspect it is one. Since Sahil was carrying around a large sum of cash, that could be incentive for someone to target him. And it could really give some motive for an attack. But I also have some issues with this idea. Sahil deposited his money early in the day, and by all accounts, he really hadn't done anything prior to depositing his money, so he wasn't exactly carrying around a large sum of cash all day. If someone saw him with a large amount of cash, they would have had to have seen it in the morning and waited to attack him for nearly 12 hours. Additionally, they likely would have had to have followed him around to know where he was and when they could target him and if they were doing that, they probably could have seen that he had deposited the money and that he no longer was carrying it around with him. Also, it seems highly unlikely that Sahil was just flashing a large wad of cash out in the public. He likely had it hidden in a wallet or a pocket, and he only would have taken it out to deposit it. Alternatively, if it were one of Sahil's friends or acquaintances, he may have told them that he had the money on him, and they may have known that they could target him and actually weren't aware that he had deposited the cash. This could also explain their knowledge of where he walked every day and his class schedule, so they could know when he was off and when he would be alone. But if this is indeed the case, police and investigators have not gathered any evidence to support this or indicate that it's even a possibility. Of course, by this point, it is almost undeniable that Sahil met with foul play, but the nature and motive are totally unclear. This case reminds me of Asim Chaudhry, mainly when I consider the fact that they both went missing in close proximity to their school in a similar area. Sahil shares some characteristics with the previous men I have mentioned. He is definitely shorter than the previous men mentioned, but he has brown eyes, he's a fairly slim person, he has dark hair, and he was out alone after spending time with friends and doing activities. Sahil was a young man in perfect shape with no known mental health issues and no medical conditions, and much like the men who I have spoken of before, he vanished without a trace, like no evidence of where he went. Sahil's family still seeks answers for where he went, what happened and why, and to this day, his case remains open and unsolved. If you have any information on this case, contact the Surrey Police Department and help give closure to Sahil's family. Next up, I'll be telling you about Manvir Sidhu. Manvir, or Mani Sidhu, was a 17-year-old high school student living in Abbotsford, B.C. Money was eleven and weighed about 160 pounds, so again, a pretty slight guy. He attended Muat Secondary School in Abbotsford, and lived with his mom Kashmir near the Rotary Stadium. Money had a girlfriend and close friends who he liked to spend his time with. Money's bedroom was on the second floor of his mother's home, and he actually apparently never really liked to use the front door. He usually left through his window whenever he was going places. His brother AJ explained that this is mostly because he found it fun climbing in and out of the window. Money's brother was actually kind of like a father figure to him. He was 10 years older than Money and he changed his diapers, mentored him, and they spent a whole lot of time together. And by all accounts, Money idolized his brother and they had an extremely close bond. In school, Money achieved good grades, and he wasn't much of a partier or someone to cause any sort of trouble. By all accounts, Money was a good kid. On March 30th of 2008, Money came home from hanging out with his friends around 10.30pm. When he arrived home, his brother AJ and his wife were over at Kashmir's home. Money came in and had a brief chat with them, just updating on his day and whatnot. They were over often, so there really wasn't that much to catch up on. Money then asked his mother to make him breakfast in the morning before he went to school, and then he headed to bed. At 7 30 the next morning, Kashmir went to wake Money up for his breakfast before he had to head to school, but when she entered his room, something was immediately wrong. When Kashmir entered Money's room, she found that his window was wide open, and his curtains were also open, but this was far from the strangest thing. Kasmir looked over to Money's bed and found that the bed looked as though someone was laying in the bed, but it was not Money. In Money's bed were a few items that were made to look like a person sleeping in a bed, but Money was nowhere to be seen. Kashmir had a sinking feeling in her stomach. Money would never just up and leave like this. Kashmir began frantically searching his room for some sort of clue as to where he was. And during this search, she found a few things. Kashmir found his passport, wallet, and all of his IDs. Kashmir quickly contacted the authorities because this was all wrong. Police arrived and took statements from the family, and from there went to meet with Money's friends and girlfriend, and this is where things start to get even more confusing, so bear with me. Around 5.45am, Money had sent texts to a couple of his friends and his girlfriend saying how he planned to move to India and that he had fallen in love with a woman there and planned on spending the rest of his life with her. This all seems strange to say the least. His friends and family said that his texts were not at all similar to what money normally texts like and I have to say people do tend to have distinct texting styles, like if I put the letter U instead of typing out Y-O-U, then people would immediately know it's not me texting. Also, even if his text messages did line up normally, he left his passport and all other forms of ID, so there's no way he's getting on an airplane. Also, his bank accounts never showed any activity regarding him buying plane tickets to begin with, so it seems highly unlikely that he's going anywhere. On April 6th of 2008, police came forward with something that may have shown where money was. The police pulled up CCTV footage from the Abbotsford Airport that showed a man resembling money with another man walking through the airport. When this footage was shown to Money's family, they immediately said this was not Money, and that they were far from the same person. Despite the family's claims that the footage did not match Money, the police quickly chalked this case up to voluntary disappearance. This meant that his case was basically put on the back burner, and he wasn't considered at risk and therefore wasn't worthy of an in-depth investigation. Kashmir was discouraged by the police's desire to quickly dismiss the case, so she decided that they needed to hire their own personal investigator. Unfortunately, there was nothing unearthed by these investigations, but surprise surprise, they didn't actually come to the conclusion that he had left for India. The main idea at the forefront of most people's minds was that money had met with foul play. There were just too many foreboding things that didn't look good for Money. Following the CCTV evidence, police have received three to four reported sightings of Money in BC, but none of those panned out. There has been no further evidence to suggest the fate or location of Money. The lack of closure took a toll on Money's family, and his mother and father separated and moved from their home in Abbotsford. Kashmir began living in BC for the summers and in India during the winter, holding on to a sliver of hope that money may be in one of those locations. Money's father remained in BC, and Money's brother and wife ended up purchasing their old home from Kashmir, where they are currently raising a boy who is now around the age of money when he disappeared, and a little girl who is about ten years younger than the boy. AJ hopes that one day his little brother will make his way back to the family home and find that his family is still there, but with each passing year, this seems less and less likely. Money also shared characteristics with the previous missing men. He had brown eyes, he was thin, young, and in good health. Money showed no evidence of mental health problems, and he had no health concerns. Money was an active and energetic young man who never went anywhere without telling anyone in his family where he was headed and now he is just gone. Money's family still needs answers, so if you know anything, please contact the Abbotsford police and help bring peace to this grieving family. Next, I will be telling you about Kellen McElwee. Kellen McElwee was a 25-year-old resident of Burnaby, B.C. He was about 5 10 and weighed about 220 pounds, with a muscular build. Kellen worked as a marketing trainer at a call center. Kellen loved his job, he was passionate about teaching people things, and always loved a good challenge. From a young age, Kellen was an active person, he enjoyed playing hockey and baseball, and excelled in both. He actually traveled around BC frequently for tournaments during his time in grade school. Kellen also did well in school, particularly in math. He was apparently a genius when it came to mathematics all throughout his schooling. He always loved teaching people things, so when he was offered his job as a marketing trainer in 2008, he was absolutely ecstatic and he maintained that level of excitement for the duration of his time working there. Kellen was always kind and giving, he was understanding, but his parents said he was far from a pushover. Kellen stood up for his beliefs, but also respected the beliefs of others. On March 19th of 2008, Kellen went out to dinner at the keg in the town of Langley next to Burnaby with a group of friends. After they had eaten their dinner, the group left the restaurant and Kellen walked to his 2006 Brown Honda Civic, which was parked at the neighbouring movie theatre parking lot. Kellen got into his car and called his group of friends on his way out of the parking lot. They said their goodbyes and departed for the night. The next morning, Kellen was scheduled in for work and he was an avid worker, he never showed up late. So when he wasn't there, his job quickly called his family to see what was going on, because this was way out of character. When Kellen's family picked up the phone, panic set in. This was not normal for Kellen. His parents called his condo, he didn't answer his cell phone or the condo phone. His parents then decided they needed to go check on him and see if he was okay. They figured maybe he had food poisoning, or maybe he had just gotten sick but they never suspected that he wouldn't be in the apartment at all. When his parents saw that Kellen was nowhere to be found in his condo, and that he clearly wasn't at work, and his car wasn't even there, they knew that the authorities had to be contacted. When talking to the police, the family laid out the events of the night before, and the lead-up to them reporting him missing, and a search ensued. This preliminary search yielded nothing, and quickly the investigation stalled. His car was gone, he was gone, and there was nothing to indicate where he was. That was until six days later, when something huge came up. On the 25th of March, Kellen Civic was found on Halifax Street, just minutes away from his apartment but it wasn't there before, as far as anyone knew. So there was Kellen's car, but where was Kellen? Initially, finding Kellen's car seemed like it could be a break in the case. It seemed like a good thing, and that it could indicate where Kellen could be found, but these glimmers of hope would soon be stifled. With Kellen's car found near his condo, police and his family thought he may turn up, but soon they realized that his car likely wasn't put there by him it seemed highly likely that someone had planted his vehicle. This made foul play seem more likely and police felt that this was more than likely a homicide investigation. Despite finding Kellen's car, investigators were no closer to finding him and leads were drying up by the minute. However, on April 10th, the Burnaby police held a press meeting revealing one more piece of evidence which they hoped would blow this case wide open. On April 6th, police received CCTV footage from Kellen's condo, and they think it could be the link to closing this case. Pictured on the footage is an unknown man walking the halls of the condo on the floor that Kellen lived. This man was covered in a large winter coat with a fur-fringed hood. He had a DC backpack, and he covered his face with either a scarf or some sort of face mask, which left only the top of his nose and eyes exposed. This man is now the primary suspect in the disappearance of Kellen McElwee, and police are currently searching for the person depicted in this footage. While this has given police a solid lead into the person responsible for his death, the case still remains unsolved to this day, and Kellen fits in with the numerous other men missing from BC's Lower Mainland. Again, Kellen was a young and healthy man. He showed no evidence of mental health problems, nor did he have any health concerns. However, his physical traits did differ from those of the other men. But then, his case bears so many similarities to those I have previously mentioned as well. Like, how his car was found abandoned after a night out with friends, just like Brian Bromberger's case, and that he had just disappeared with no indication of previous problems. Someone clearly targeted him based on when he was alone, which seems like it could be the case with the other men that I have mentioned. I don't know whether this case is linked, or, honestly, if any of these cases are linked, but I think it's worth considering, and no matter what, these cases deserve attention to bring home those who are missed by their families. Next, I'll be talking to you about Pablo Guerra. Pablo was a 17-year-old boy attending high school in Burnaby, B.C. Pablo was about 5'8 and about 150 pounds, so a pretty small guy again. He lived at home with his mother and sister. Pablo was in his last year of high school, and as most kids are when it approaches graduation day, he was feeling pretty nervous. He wasn't sure how to feel about this change, but he was also really excited about what the future held, and by all accounts, he was a happy person. Pablo had a decent group of friends, but unfortunately, things between them had gotten a bit tense towards the end of the school year. They weren't in any drastic fight or anything, but I think tensions were a bit high when considering that all of their lives would be changing greatly over the next few months. From a young age, Pablo loved to play soccer, and he continued to do so throughout his times of stress. It gave him a nice reprieve from all of his anxieties surrounding him. On May 10th, Pablo came home with a necklace. When he came across his mother, he handed her the necklace and wished her Happy Mother's Day. His mother was touched, but not that surprised. Pablo was a sweet kid, and he always made sure to show his love to those who were important to him. Following this, Pablo headed out to see some friends. His mother and sister expected him home in the evening, but hours went by, and they heard nothing. As the hours turned into a full day his family grew immensely nervous and contacted authorities to get help. His family knew that he would never leave for this long without so much as a goodbye. The next day, police uncovered Pablo's jacket, which they found underneath the nearby Ironworker Memorial Bridge. Despite finding his jacket, the police found no sign of Pablo. Because his jacket was found under a fairly high bridge, the police jumped onto the idea that Pablo might have died by suicide. However, this idea did not sit well with the family. Pablo, although a little anxious, was a happy and well-rounded kid. He showed no indications of suicidal ideation, and really, nothing other than his jacket appearing under the bridge gave any indication that he had taken his own life. But since this case was thought to be a suicide, the searches became less involved and Pablo's case has kind of faded into the background. Pablo's family still needs answers, but with no evidence pointing out where to find him, they are left with little more than memories. Since no evidence has shown up about where Pablo is, I find it very unlikely that he took his own life, even if he had jumped into a river, I feel like at some point, something would indicate where he was, or that he had died in that river. I mean, in BC, there's a strange phenomenon where shoes keep washing up on beaches that have detached feet in them. And it's suspected that most of these feet come from people who died by suicide, and their feet got detached during the process of decomposition. And, all of these feet are always tested to link them back to someone, and none of them have ever matched Pablo. Again, foul play seems like a possibility when you consider the idea of disappearing without a trace, and with him bearing similar features and having a similar case overall to the other men who have vanished. I can't shake this feeling that something bad could have happened to him by the hands of another. Unfortunately, there is little information to be found on Pablo's disappearance, but I have tried to incorporate all that I could gather. Pablo was by all accounts close with his mother and sister and they miss him dearly. Please, if you know anything, contact the Burnaby police. Pablo deserves justice. The final case I'll be talking to you about is the one of Derek Kelly. For a while, I contemplated whether I should incorporate Derek's case in this series, His case seems very unlikely to be linked to the disappearances I have talked to you about, but it is a young man who has disappeared from BC's Lower Mainland, and it definitely is a case worthy of conversation. So I decided it would be worth telling you about how Derek Kelly disappeared from a New Year's party back in 2008. Derek Kelly was from the outside looking in, a social, well-liked, and well-rounded individual. Back in 1998, when Derek was 21 years old, he went to court to testify against someone, and since then he has always been on alert, afraid that one day it could come back and haunt him. In 2007, Derek had a stable job and a new girlfriend who he was really enjoying his time with. He had a strong group of friends and overall life seemed good. On December 31st of 2007, Derek decided to go with a few friends and acquaintances to a party at a cabin just outside of town. The cabin actually belonged to the ex-husband of his current girlfriend, but he apparently wasn't there at that time. On January 7th, Derek's mom was getting ready to celebrate her birthday, but one thing was missing. There was no call from Derek. Now they often went a few days without chatting, he was in his 30s after all and he had a life of his own, but he never missed a call for someone's birthday. So his mom decides to call him, just to remind him, maybe he forgot, that can happen. So she calls, and the call goes to voicemail. She calls again, and the same thing happens. After a few more calls, she decided she should call his girlfriend, just to see if she knew what was up. When his mom gets through to Derek's girlfriend, she gets a story that absolutely baffles her. Derek's girlfriend tells his mom that she hasn't heard from him since the party. His girlfriend goes on to explain that she had to leave early from the party that night, and that he decided to stay with the rest of the group. This concerned Derek's mom when she heard that his girlfriend hadn't heard from him since that night, and she called the authorities immediately to get to the bottom of this. Investigators quickly began collecting evidence and taking from those who attended the party with Derek. One by one, they each tell a story of how they left without him and haven't heard from him since. Yet, no one in the group had ever thought to call his parents or report him missing. Everything seemed a little off to investigators, so they decided to press the party-goers further. But they all refused to say anything beyond the fact that they left without him. Police had hit a brick wall, but they knew that the party was the key to solving his disappearance. In 2010, police officers received a warrant to search the cabin which the party was held in, During the search, police say they uncovered evidence that is crucial to this case. Based on this evidence, police definitively labeled Derek's case as a homicide. What evidence was found has not been released to the public, but the police say that the final pieces to conclude this case rest in the minds of the people that were at the party, and until someone speaks, this case will remain open. The police have a few people they think were witnesses to the crime, And claimed to even have a suspect in the murder. Unfortunately, despite the seemingly solid leads the police have, this case remains open today. While most people are convinced that this is a homicide, the people that went to the party and in particular Derek's girlfriend have a different idea of what truly happened to Derek. Derek's girlfriend came forward claiming that she strongly believes that the RCMP had taken Derek away that night and put him into witness protection, And from there he became an informant for them. It's uncertain why she suspects this but in my opinion it seems like a very convenient cover-up if something bad truly did happen to Derek on that night. Also if he was in witness protection it seems unlikely that the RCMP would have let the investigation into his disappearance go this far. Overall this case isn't that similar to the other disappearances but some people have drawn a few links. Personally, I believe someone at that party likely did something to Derek, and that his case is completely unrelated, but then again, I don't know that for sure, and honestly I don't even know if the other ones are related, so I'm going to leave that for you to decide. Those were 5 more cases in the string of missing men in BC's Lower Mainland. I have no clue if these are linked, but the more men that vanish under similar circumstances, the harder it becomes to not draw links between them. But this isn't even the end of the disappearances, and next week I will be back with more on the men disappearing from BC's Lower Mainland. And that's next week on Shades of Crime. Thank you for listening to Shades of Crime. Our theme music is by Shalee Musso. This episode was written and researched by me. The sources for this episode and all of our other episodes can be found on our blog, www.shadesofcrime.ca. Shades of Crime can be found on almost any platform where you listen to your podcasts. You can also find us on Instagram at Shades of Crime Podcast. If you like what you hear, could you please rate and review Shades of Crime on Apple Podcasts? It's a fantastic way to get the word out about this show. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or if you would like to request a case, email us at shadesofcrime at gmail.com. That's all for this week, and I'll see you in the next episode.